Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today we're going to talk about fertility preservation as it pertains to cancer patients. It's a very delicate topic. Uh, It's an unfortunate topic that we have to address, uh, but also in some way exciting and hopeful in that we're we're giving patients the opportunity to still parent. Uh, This is a a field that's been developing uh, throughout this decade, and it really, we have to applaud our colleagues in medical oncology and surgical oncology and radiation oncology because they're doing better and better in the survival of of patients with cancer. It's a devastating time when patients are being uh, given that diagnosis, but in those in their reproductive age groups, uh, men and women, uh, being given the opportunity to freeze their eggs and freeze their sperm with with the hope and prayer that they survive their cancer, they are being given the opportunity to be parents because what we're going to talk about today is how the actual treatment, the cancer treatment, could accelerate the loss of eggs and sperm and, and make them sterile and, and unable to fa- uh, father or, or mother or parent a child. So uh, a little bit of background to let you know that, that women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, about one to two million at birth. And then when you go through puberty, you're down to about 200 to 400,000 hundreds Hundreds of those eggs get ready to ovulate on a monthly basis. Only one makes it, and the rest die off. It's estimated that about 450 ovulatory cycles occurs in a woman's lifetime. Now, we take to the men that they don't start making sperm until puberty, and then that continues. It takes about 72 days or so for sperm to mature, and that continues throughout a man's lifetime. As a man gets older... They're not excused from the problems of fertility is that we know that men above 40 to 45 have declining fertility and increasing risks of of other uh, health problems with with babies. But these opportunities to preserve fertility uh, are increasing now. And what we want to do is also increase the awareness. And to help me do that is a a dear friend. She's a a brilliant uh, reproductive endocrinologist in the Chicago area. It's Dr. Eve Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is the medical director for Northwestern Fertility and Reproductive Medicine, and is an assistant professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She did share with me that that's a different Feinberg. It's not her university school of medicine, but I told her someday it will be, I'm sure. Um, she's the vice president, soon to be president, of the Society for Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility and Specialty Editor for fertility and sterility. What, what I'm very impressed about, other than uh, all of her publications and, and her insight and, and creativity and, and, uh, in, in our specialty, she's the founder and president of the Life Foundation. It's a collaborative Chicago foundation that provides financial assistance to individuals and couples struggling with infertility. So, Eve, thank you so much for joining us today on the Fertility Health Podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, uh, anytime, anytime. So you've, you've 
done a lot of work in this area. Um, why, why now do you think, or over this past decade, why, why has fertility preservation uh, been uh, increasing in, in, in awareness, if you will? Well, I think there's two reasons behind that. First is the advent of vitrification has really revolutionized the, our ability to freeze and then later warm up eggs. Vitrification is a process, as you know, where we, where we flash freeze an egg so that it doesn't have ice crystals that will damage the egg. Vitrification was invented around 2007, and so since that time, egg freezing has become a whole lot more popular. Yeah, yeah, that, I, that, that really, really opened the doors for a lot of opportunities, egg freezing uh, for planned uh, oocyte crop preservation uh, uh, for elective, uh, as well as for the cancer patients. And I, I wanted to mention what I didn't at the outset. Uh, years ago, in the, in the early 2000s, maybe 2006, actually, American Society of Clinical Oncology recommended fertility preservation in cancer patients really should be a, a part of the informed consent for patients being given the diagnosis, but it really wasn't very adhered. Uh, just a couple of numbers to throw, throw at our audience is that in the early 2010s, studies had showed that while radiation and medical oncologists, over 80% did make that uh, discussion for patients, only about 50% of surgeons offered this opportunity for patients. And in terms of re referring to uh, for fertility preservation, uh, 24 to 31% of all oncologists did that. So that mm -hmm. was in the early 2010s, which is, which is really unfortunate. But what, what kind of numbers are we seeing now, Eve? Uh, do you see that increasing? I know personally uh, I'm getting a lot more uh, patients with, with emergency IVF cycles. What, what are you seeing? I think so. I mean, I'm also somewhat biased in that I'm, a, I'm at a big university hospital center. I'm at a major cancer center within Chicago, and we have a full-time, we have two full-time faculty members that are dedicated solely to patient navigation for fertility preservation, but it's booming. And I think in part, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the oncologists are doing an amazing job ensuring survivability or giving patients the best chance at survival. But then I also think with the advent of this technology and then in 2013, our society, ASRM, lifted the experimental label from egg freezing. And so I think the combination of those factors, live birth data, plus it's no longer considered to be experimental to, to freeze an egg, has really prompted a lot more awareness. And yeah. I think that this the idea of social egg freezing and some of the companies that are that are paying for it are really driving the boat in terms of getting insurance coverage for cancer patients. And yeah, I don't know and, if you're aware of this, being in Florida, but in Illinois, there was a law that was passed this past January that mandates that insurance companies cover fertility preservation for um, those patients who need it due to cancer. Yeah, I was just on the news uh, uh, in the lo local uh, news station talking about uh, insurance coverage for fertility. And, and while there's about 15 to 16 uh, states in the, in the country mandating uh, general fertility coverage, about five or so uh, will do fertility preservation. But I just read in the news today that uh, New York is, is trying to pass legislation to mandate coverage for infertility as well as fertility preservation. So 
Uh, hopefully that goes through and other states follow through. Uh, I, I wanted to just uh, talk about realistic expectations after uh, cancer treatment and, and what can a couple or a man or, or a woman um, face. Uh, in other words, the, these, uh, they're being given the diagnosis of, of cancer and then they say, well, you're going to need radiation or you're going to need chemotherapy. And for women, cyclophosphamide, which is an alkylating agent, uh, I'm addressing the audience now, is a pretty damaging one for the eggs. Uh, and there's also a level of radiation, maybe more than five grays, that are going to really damage uh, the eggs as well. What, what kind of numbers are you quoting uh, to, to, to uh, the, these women on, on what they can expect after this kind of a treatment uh, for ovarian failure, the, uh, the ability to resume menses after treatment? Yeah, so it really depends on the age of the woman when she undergoes chemotherapy. And so what chemotherapy will do is it will destroy a proportion of the woman's egg supply. And so it all has to do with what you start out with. And so if you start out with a really young patient who has a robust supply of eggs, on the back end, she's going to have a diminished reserve of, of eggs, but she's not going to necessarily be completely in menopause. If you have a woman who's in her late 30s or closer to 40, however, you're starting out with a pretty limited supply of eggs, and in the majority of situations, chemotherapy insult is going to put her into menopause. And so when we talk about what the risks are, we look at her age going into it, we look at the type of chemotherapy that she's going to be receiving, and you're right, cytoxin or cyclophosphamide is, is the most damaging, and then we look at the total dose that they're anticipated to receive. Part of the challenge, though, comes in in patients who are at low risk for ovarian failure with their first-line cancer treatment. So take something like Hodgkin's, for example. Those women typically get a regimen of chemotherapy that doesn't include cyclophosphamide. And so sometimes people think, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I'm not getting an ovarian damaging agent. However, if they have a relapse or recurrence of disease, Oftentimes, second-line therapies are things like bone marrow transplants, which are sterilizing. And so you can't always predict what their reproductive future is going to look like. But in general, the younger the man or the younger the woman, they, they usually will respond better to receiving this kind of treatment as opposed to certainly if they're over 40. Correct. And I right. think that it's a big – I think that one of the things that studies have looked at from an endpoint perspective is they look at resumption of menstrual cycles as a surrogate marker for fertility. And I don't think that that's necessarily the right way of looking at it. So no, a lot of times, absolutely, absolutely. yeah, in the chemotherapy literature, they'll talk about resumption of menses. Now, as we have better tests like anti-mullerian hormone or AMH, um, those tests are really a lot more predictive of the damage that chemotherapy has done to that egg supply. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Just because they got their periods back does not, did not equate with fertility. Very, very important point, Eve. Um, just as a, as a, I'm just going to interject, there, there not all cancer conditions that would, would, uh, would compel somebody uh, to uh, undergo fertility preservation, uh, but once again, the, fo the focus is going to be uh, about cancer. I, I wanted to interject uh, something about uh, GnRH agonists. Uh, Luprolide acetate is, is, is uh, the generic, and Lupron is the, is the brand name. I have just seen the pendulum swinging left and right and forward and backwards uh, about giving that therapy uh, 
during uh, chemotherapy uh, to, to try to salvage the, the eggs. And, and it's really been terribly mixed. What, what, what is your interpretation of that? I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the pendulum initially was very much in favor of using a GnRH agonist and then swung the other way. And then there was a large New England Journal randomized trial that looked at the use of an agonist um, prior to and with the induction of chemotherapy that did show benefit. And I think agonists work in two ways. I personally think it's a nice tool to use if you're not able to do some sort of other fertility preservation like egg freezing or embryo freezing or sperm freezing. Um, and I think if you don't have the time or there are other barriers, I think it's a nice adjunct. The way that that works is controversial, but it's thought that the granulosa cells, which are the tiny little cells that surround the egg, it's thought that those are rapidly dividing and that chemotherapy attacks rapidly dividing cells and therefore it may attack the granulosa cell in the egg. And so by putting those cells into more of a resting phase, you may be protecting the ovary. My other theory on it, and it hasn't been well studied, is that it may actually decrease the delivery of chemotherapy to the ovary. When the ovary is not active, the blood supply um, as studied on Doppler studies and other things, the blood supply to the ovary may be reduced. And so an agonist may also work by decreasing the dose of chemotherapy that the ovary sees. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've uh, seen uh, that discussion uh, uh, about that before. So very, very interesting. So why don't we just mention um, I, I, the issues of um, uh, the man, obviously, for, for our audience, the man is going to uh, more easily, if he's gone through puberty, be able to uh, provide uh, a sperm sample to, to uh, freeze and then have that uh, when needed, hopefully. But for the woman to go through fertility preservation, they have to go through uh, injectable fertility medication to stimulate the ovaries, uh, develop those uh, follicular cysts, and then undergo the egg retrieval uh, at, at a uh, IVF center and then either freeze eggs or if they have a partner, then they, they will freeze, um, uh, freeze embryos. Uh, but w when, you, when you're doing this uh, type of uh, stimulation, you talk, to, talk to us a little bit about starting traditionally on your period or a random start where you can literally start any time in a woman's cycle. Correct. So, and that's a newer, a newer thought process and one that we use every day at Northwestern. The old thought process is that follicles grow in waves and you have to, the wave of that follicle development really started with the onset of a period. And if you want to get more than one egg retrieved on one cycle, then you had to start with a period and you had to use higher doses of injectable hormones to capture that wave. It has been subsequently um, discovered that follicles actually grow in different waves in different cycles. And if you start simulation at any point throughout a woman's menstrual cycle, you're able to recruit um, a wave of follicles. It doesn't have to be with the onset of a period. And so oftentimes what happens when we have a new cancer diagnosis that's interested in doing fertility preservation, that woman will come to our clinic, she'll be seen, and we will start medications that night or the next night. And we'll just go. We'll blast her ovaries with stimulation medications. We'll retrieve the eggs usually within 10 to 12 days 
we can get the eggs out. And depending on her ovarian reserve and her menstrual cycles when she's not undergoing chemotherapy, we use different types of medications to trigger the final egg maturation. And we can usually prevent any serious complications from an egg retrieval, things like ovarian hyperstimulation, by adjusting the types of medications. And so literally from the day somebody walks in until their egg retrieval is two weeks. And so if you get a new diagnosis and you get in and you get seen, um, it doesn't really delay treatment by that much. Yeah, uh, excellent, excellent review. Just just for our audience again, Eve and I are from the north, and we get a little bit overzealous. So when when she said blast the ovaries, I completely understand what that means. Um, but what she's referring to is that you want to be as aggressive as possible. I I would say the same thing. Is we get we we be as aggressive as possible because this may be the only time uh, that uh, she, uh, the woman will be able to preserve her eggs. So an, an aggressive stimulation is absolutely. Uh, important for for them, but I wanted to um, uh, pick your brain for just a moment, Eve. About how do you know about the risk of pregnancy if she is a day or two after ovulation or, or several days after ovulation, too early to get a HCG level uh, for pregnancy test, uh, but is sexually active? What do you do about that? Nothing. We we still go. Okay. All right. Is there special uh, information or special consent or so on and so forth? Or is there any literature that I have not seen, uh, but is there any literature that has talked about exposure um, um, in this kind of a setting that you're going right into a cycle? Uh, I remember years ago we, we were concerned about exposure on GNH agonists, and that was what we used for ovarian suppression, but there really was no effect on pregnancy. Anything that you've seen uh, that, that could possibly uh, be uh, uh, information that we that could help us if, if they start stimulation uh, in an unknown pregnancy? No, I mean, I, I, I actually think about it the other way, and we have a patient that we saw in our office today who unfortunately has a new diagnosis of breast cancer, mm. uh, large aggressive breast cancer, and we also diagnosed an early pregnancy on her this morning oh, wow. when she came in. Wow. Now, she's not intending to keep the pregnancy because of the risk of chemotherapy. Um, she can't delay her chemotherapy, so she is planning to terminate the pregnancy and stimulate her ovaries. Oh, my and goodness. so wow. what we have figured out um, through, again, trial and error, and we will be publishing this, is that you have to wait until the pregnancy hormone is out of the system because if they are pregnant, it will negatively impact your ability to retrieve eggs. And so I, I guess I haven't really thought about it on the flip side of the risk of the stimulation medications to a fetus, but more the risk of a pregnancy in terms of decreasing the potential hmm. to be able to freeze eggs. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, I know that that audience is probably thinking about fertility drugs. I get this with women who don't have cancer, and they talk about, you know, what are these drugs going to do? And, and fortunately, our field has been intensively self-scrutinized as well as from outside, and there is no definitive evidence of increasing risk of, 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 of cancer, certainly not invasive breast cancer, ovarian or uterine cancer. There may be some risk of borderline um, uh, ovary uh, uh, tumor, but uh, not, not uh, anything invasive. Uh, the medications that we use, uh, also do not appear to increase the risk uh, in, in the BRCA mutation patients. Are, are you using 
just to be on the safer side, are you using the, the, the aromatase inhibitors which will lower the estrogen level during stimulation? And if you do, uh, are you continuing that or are you, using, are you using an antagonist to keep the estrogen levels down? What are you, what are you doing for the breast cancer patients? So we've actually published the data on this, um, and we've looked at it both using aromatase inhibitors as well as ovarian stimulation without the use of aromatase inhibitors, and we've compared both stimulation parameters, number of eggs retrieved, as well as long-term follow-up on those patients. And what we have found is that there's no difference in long-term follow-up as measured by disease recurrence or um, survivability, but stimulation cycles uh, typically have fewer eggs retrieved when you use an aromatase inhibitor. And so we've, we've stopped using them within our practice. Wow. And again, sort of going to going to the idea that this may be their only chance to retrieve mm-hmm. eggs. We're going to be mm-hmm. as aggressive as we possibly can. And given that the data really doesn't show uh, potential downside of short-term high doses of estrogen, even in ER and PR positive, estrogen receptor positive and progesterone receptor positive patients, there haven't been differences in long-term outcomes. We, as a practice, have stopped using aromatase inhibitors to allow women to get more eggs retrieved at the time of their stimulation cycle. Very interesting. Well, so, uh, but you're using, of course, the GnRH antagonist. We are. We yeah. almost exclusively will use an antagonist protocol mm-hmm. Right. in patients who are doing fertility preservation just because it's so quick. Yeah, so quick and express ovulation. And are you continuing that at all after egg retrieval to try to keep estradiol levels down, or you're not concerned about that? Sometimes we'll give an additional three days of antagonist post-retrieval yeah. just to knock the levels down. Right. So real quickly, and I'll find a minute, and, and, and this has been just fantastic, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time or at all talking about experimental or, or just maybe non-traditional methods of uh, ovarian tissue that can be removed from the ovary and, and preserved and then trying to extract eggs from there. Um, uh, there's also the option of uh, transposing the ovary surgically, moving them out of the pelvis, out of the uh, beams of radiation uh, that would be going to a pelvic cancer. Um, but what do you think is in the future, uh, Eve, since you have done so much, so, so much work on this? Where, where are we going with options of fertility preservation? Well, I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, Teresa Woodruff and some of my basic science colleagues at Northwestern who are actively working on something called in-follicle maturation. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to harvest ovarian tissue and then grow that ovarian tissue in a laboratory to produce follicles um, outside of the human body. And I think that that may be where it's going to be able to harvest ovarian tissue and then rather than reimplant it, which is uh, generally thought to be a little bit dangerous in women that have malignancies that have potential for recurrence, is to grow those grow that tissue, grow the follicles, and grow the eggs outside of the body to be able to do in vitro fertilization. Oh, my gosh. That, that, that would be fantastic. So this is not stem cells. This is actual ovarian tissue, correct? Ovarian tissue. But I, yeah. I, taking that one step forward, where I really think we're going to go is using other tissue types to create eggs. <laughs> mm. well, but but in, the mouse, in the mouse, we saw that they, they were doing that with skin cells to sperm. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That would be fantastic. 
Well, this has just been incredibly educational for me and, and, and I'm sure all of our audience. And, and uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, as is the case with all of our podcasts. We get so involved in it, it's just the time just flies. But I, I want to thank uh, my guest, uh, Dr. E. Feinberg uh, from Northwestern. If you are in the Chicago area, uh, please look her up. She is just brilliant and you will get excellent care. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.